I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Jane Eyre. We're here to discuss chapters 28 through 33, which means that we are coming to the end. We're on the, the back nine. I don't know. Whatever metaphor you want to use. We're, we're almost done. We got this week, then next week, and then a Q&A episode. Before we dive into that, though, I wanted to remind people that there's a lot of other content that they can check out. They can check out the Daily Poem, of course, and we do have our Patreon-exclusive episodes where right now we are working through The Lord of the Rings. We just recorded the episode for The Two Towers, the last episode on The Two Towers. So we're going to jump into The, the uh, Return of the King next. So if you're interested in any of that, you can you know subscribe wherever you get podcasts and so on and so forth. Just wanted to remind you that such things exist. Karen, before we dive in, anything that you want to pitch, promote? Um, for readers who or listeners who don't know, I have a a new column at Religion News Service that started a few months ago. So I have um, a monthly column at RNS. Um, and so you can check out my column there. Nice. And of course, you can also buy oh, yes. the new books. Yes, the, of the course. Frankenstein and Jane Eyre. You know, if you don't, I mean, you probably already have them, but you know, in the off chance that you don't, or you might have a mother in your life for whom these would make a good mother. A mother present. or a graduate. These are mm. wonderful graduation gifts. I'll, I will promote that. Yes. I actually have a section in the store here for graduates and I, it's right there, it's right there on the See? graduate section. So I was right and you were right. <laughs> So yeah, we're here to discuss Jane Eyre's chapters 28 through 33. And I think I can summarize what happened in this one for you all this time. Here's what happened. Jane Eyre was poor. She got rich. That's it. That's basically what happened. <laughs> wow, um, that's good. <laughs> although, in, uh, to be fair, in between, she did meet some new friends who it turns out were her cousins. So we should make sure that that gets included <laughs> as well. But of course, this is the section where she has left... Rochester, she's left Thornfield. And at the beginning, she is she's on the run. It's the weather's not great. She's hungry. She's destitute. She goes to a village where people are not terribly uh inviting. And she ultimately ends up at the house of St. John Rivers, who is a minister and his those with his two sisters. And they take her in, they take care of her, they find her a teaching post through Sinjin's work. Meanwhile, the two sisters, Diana and Mary, leave. They go off. But while they're gone, it turns out the information is revealed that not only has Jane come into quite a bit of wealth, but she also is the cousin of Mary, Diana, and Sinjin. And her <laughs> uncle was the one that didn't let them inherit the money that they thought they were going to inherit earlier in the section. So now she can make everybody's lives better. And at the end of the section, she has basically said, let's just split this money four ways. By the way, I looked up, Heidi had to jump off for a second because she has an electrician coming, but I looked up how much the money was in current, you know, with inflation and everything, current dollars. If you had to guess what 20,000 pounds was from 18, I used 1847 as my marker since that one was when the book was published. What would you guess that is in today's money? Um, oh, didn't I not put that in the notes? Because I figured that out for a different book, but must, oh, probably was, uh, you know, to be sensibility. Fair, yeah. You may have, and I didn't see No, <laughs> I, didn't. I, but no, I would, I don't think that I did. I think I did that for Sense and Sensibility. So let me get, oh, like in American, do, like a million dollars. 2.5 million American dollars. Just shy what? of that. So wow. when they divided it up, they basically were all getting 500,000 
500,000 US dollars in right. 2021. Wow. So, and of course, the dollar probably went a lot further than too. <laughs> or maybe wow. it didn't. Wow. Um, I don't think I did figure that out for this book. Yeah. So it's a, it's a not insignificant amount of money, which of course is what Sinjin is saying. Um, I'm kind of killing time here because I wanted Heidi to hear this, but there is a new book out that I wanted to share with you share, um, because in it, there is a section on Charlotte Bronte and on Jane Eyre. And it's from TLS, the Times Literary Standard, which is the English paper. And it's called oh. Genius and Ink, Virginia Woolf on How to Read. And it's a selection of a lot of her essays oh. from the TLS, the Times Literary Standard, over the years. And the first chapter is on Charlotte Bronte. And I thought it would be, I thought you guys oh. might like to hear a few of what, a few of the paragraphs of what Virginia Woolf wrote about Charlotte Bronte. And of course, this is back in probably the 19 teens or 20s, because I think Charlotte Bronte died in 19, sorry, not Charlotte Bronte, Virginia Woolf died in 1940s, I think. Let's see here. I think 1941. Oh, 1941. Okay. Um, so these are from the, because I actually had a student asking me for a print version of, of these essays from the common reader, I think are some of them. Oh uh, yeah. And, um, and I couldn't find a good edition. So I just told her to look at, they are online, but I did not know about this book. I'm really excited to hear about it. I believe that it released Tuesday of this week officially. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, there's, there's writing in here on T.S. Eliot, Henry James, Sylvia Plath, Bronte, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Joseph Conrad. Hey, people that you are interested in. <laughs> um, what is the name of the book? It, the book is called Genius and Ink. There's something in here um, on the letters of Henry James. There's a chapter called On Rereading Novels, Montaigne, Notes on Elizabethan Play, Fanny Burney's Half-Sister, Aurora Lee, and then the final chapter is called The Captain's Deathbed. So it's a really uh, interesting collection. And so she started writing for the TLS, Virginia Woolf did, in 19... before Somewhere before 1910, it looks like. 1906 or 7. And so these are among the, the, the essays that she wrote over the years. And there's a... Um, like this is the artwork you can't obviously if you're listening you can't see it but karen you can probably see i can that's, see it wow on the title page beautiful yeah. <clears throat> so while we're waiting for heidi this might be a good time to just read a couple of the paragraphs would you be interested in hearing some of what I would. Virginia yeah, had to say I, about i mean i i have i have read and quoted them before but they're the, yeah, the listeners yeah. really need to hear them yes Heidi, we're talking about how there's a new book out called genius and ink virginia wolf on how to read and in that she has a chapter on Charlotte Bronte, and this is from her writing in the Times Literary Supplement, which of uh, the UK paper. And so the very first chapter is on Charlotte Bronte, and I wanted to read a little bit of what she had to say about Bronte's work. I'm going to pick it up here. So many novels once held great have gone out of fashion or are pronounced unreadable that we may justly feel a little anxiety when the time comes to make trial of Jane Eyre and the rest. We have suggested that a book, in order to live, must have the power of changing as we change. And we have to ask ourselves whether it is possible that Charlotte Bronte can have kept pace with us. Shall we not go back to her world of the 50s and find that it is a place only to be visited by the learned, only to be preserved for the curious? A novelist, we reflect, is bound to build up his structure with, very, with much very perishable material, which begins by lending it reality and ends by cumbering its form. The mid-Victorian world, moreover, is the last that we of the present moment wish to see resuscitated. 
one opens Jane Eyre with all these half-conscious premonitions and excuses, and in ten minutes, one finds the whole of them dispersed, and the light shining, and the wind blowing upon a wild and bracing prospect. So then she offers a few quotes. She's talking a little bit about characterization and things like that. So going ahead just a little bit, she says, it is not possible when you are reading Charlotte Bronte to lift your eyes from the page. She has you by the hand and forces you along her road, seeing the things she sees and as she sees them. She is never absent for a moment, nor does she attempt to conceal herself or to disguise her voice. At the conclusion of Jane Eyre, we do not feel so much that we have read a book as that we have parted with a most singular and eloquent woman met by chance upon a Yorkshire hillside who has gone with us for a time and told us the whole of her life story. So strong is the impression that if we are disturbed while we are reading, the disturbance seems to take place in the novel and not in the room. There are two reasons for this astonishing close, closeness and sense of personality. That she is herself the heroine of her own novels, and if we may divide people into those who think and those who feel, that she is primarily the recorder of feelings and not of thoughts. Her characters are linked together by their passions as by a train of gunpowder. One of these small, pale, volcanic, volcanic women, be she Jane Eyre or Lucy Snow, has but to come upon the scene, and wherever she looks, there start up round her characters of extreme individuality and intensity who are branded forever with the features she discerns in them. I want to read this a little bit here. I don't want to do this for too long because I don't want it to get boring. But she says, there are novelists like Tolstoy and Jane Austen who persuade us that their characters live and are complex by means of their effect upon many different people who mirror them in the round. They move hither and thither whether, whether their creator watches them or not. But we cannot imagine Rochester when he is apart from Jane Eyre. Or rather, we can only see him in different situations as she would have seen him in them. And to be always in love and always a governess is to go through the world with blinkers on one's eyes. There are serious limitations, perhaps. Or these are serious limitations, perhaps. And it may be true that they give her work a look of crudeness and violence beside that of more impersonal and more experienced artists. At the same time, it is by reason of this marvelous gift of vision that she takes her place with the greatest novelists we have. No writer, that is to say, surpasses her in the power of making what she describes immediately visible to us. She seems to sit down to write from compulsion. The scenes in her mind are painted so boldly and in such strong colors that her hand drives rapidly across the paper and trembles with the intensity of her thought. It is not surprising to hear that she did not enjoy writing her books, and yet that writing was the only occupation that could lift her up when the burden of sorrow and shame which life laid on her weighted her to the ground. Every one of her books seems to be a superb gesture of defiance, bidding her torturers depart and leave her queen of a splendid island of imagination. Like some hard-pressed captain, she summoned her powers together and proudly annihilated the enemy. So there's more, but, you know, this book is just full of that kind of Virginia Woolf writing, which is in and of, in and of itself, someone could write a book about her writing this in this book. Um, so I wanted to just share a little bit about that. If you're interested, definitely check this one out. Like I said, it came out on Tuesday and she writes about you know everybody from Bronte to Elliot to Henry James, Montaigne, Conrad, Hardy, and others. Mm -hmm. So um, I love Virginia Woolf's writing on writing. I mean, I like her books too, but I think this is, she's just so good on these writers, I think. Karen, you said you've read a lot of this before. Yes, her criticism of, of Jane Eyre is just very, is famous. So it's... Um, mm. Are you a big Virginia Woolf fan? Um, I, I you like, know, like some, Mrs. Dalloway and so forth. Yeah, I like her more accessible work. <laughs> um, she can be pretty, you know. She, yeah, modernism is definitely 
difficult and not that enjoyable. But I like her, um, you know, I like her autobiography and I like her criticism and her essays. Yeah. And and some of her novels. Yeah. yeah. The Lighthouse. I love To The Lighthouse. Yeah. And of course, she's famous for A Room of One's Own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably most. Would you say she's most famous for that? Yes. Well, anyway, since we're talking about Charlotte Bronte, I thought people might want to hear a little bit about what Virginia Woolf had to say about her, um, if, in case they hadn't heard that. Well, let's talk chapters 28 through 33. As I said at the beginning, first she's poor, then she's rich. Where should we start? Uh, probably we should talk a little bit about Sinjin. Um, well, can because... we can we start actually just with the with the beginning of this volume where she, I mean, she really is poor. Um, yeah. Yeah, so chapter 28, right. The beginning of volume right, three right, is right. chapter 28, yeah. I mean, because... So page 535. Yeah, I think that... Um, I mean, this is just a really heart-wrenching new beginning for for Jane, and she's had such a hard life already. But she is, I mean, it, it's almost unbelievable, but she's more destitute and alone here than ever before. And we've already, uh, you know, seen her in such deplorable circumstances. Uh, I mean, she literally, when I was, I don't know if I, I just don't, you know, you could remember everything, but in rereading this last year, I was just really struck by um, the scene where she's literally eating pig's food. You know, I mean, she's just that hungry and that starved and um, that isolated and alone with no one to help her. As you said, this village is not very friendly. And, you know, through all of this, it seems like she can't get any lower. And then when we enter volume one, she's even lower than she's ever been before, I guess is what I want to want to say. And um, structurally, that seems significant. Well, and thematically, it's significant too, right? Because in order to redeem her or revive her story, there has to be, you know, most, most stories will have a like a death scene right some kind of like she's entering into the valley of the shadow of death mm -hmm. here we get to see exactly how much this costs her like it almost costs her very life to leave him mm -hmm. and and so she is yes. metaphorically symbolically dying here and is in a position of needing to be rescued which to your point karen we have seen jane in dire circumstances before unloved um abused as a child starved and left and exposed and um in the orphanage she suffered a great deal already but she thought she was going to get a new life right and then she leaves it behind out of her own strength of will this time it's not because she's being rejected and abandoned like it was when she was a child this is something she's owning for herself she is entering into the valley of the shadow of death by her own will and volition and we as readers enter into exactly what that costs her and see that it almost kills her and this, I mean, and this is really helpful. You know, I, I saw some discussion going on in the um, in the Close Reads podcast group about you know some. I mean, not everyone has to love Jane Eyre. I I, I accept. I try to accept that. Um, <laughs> but but some of the complaints well, no accounting that for, are common about. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But there is right and wrong and objective truth, even aesthetic truth. But, um, <laughs> but you know, so there's emotional truth in this novel. And so the things that we find 
you know, maybe not that believable or just over the top are, are emotionally true and even spiritually true. That's why I talk about this book as, as, as a kind of an allegory. So you don't have to have been tempted to commit adultery or bigamy in your life to have to be in a place where you make a decision that's going to cost you um, and cost cost you even possibly um jane i mean jane almost loses her life here um and i and, and i don't want to over so so there's a truth here that's beyond the literal level of the story itself and i think sometimes just reading you know just staying on that surface level of the plot and the events can blind us to this this kind of um allegorical and uh anagogical truth here uh and i love the fact that this uh this is the very first page of of chapter 28 on 535 the place where she uh comes is is called whitcross right i mean we've mentioned before how symbolic the names are i mean this this is um this is a place of, of it's a crossroads but it's also a you know it's the christian it's, it's a it's a place where Jane still has to take on the burden of the cross for herself as a Christian woman. Well, I'm really glad you said that because this entire section of the novel that we're reading right now, uh, every time it reminds me of the words of Christ when he says, uh, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive it back a hundredfold. And I think last week, the, the last words, when, when David asked final thoughts, mine was look for a reason why the novel continues to go. Why there's nearly half the novel still to go after this loss for her. And I, I do think that it is, that it is this verse that she has given everything up for, and for the sake of her virtue, for the sake of her faith, Everything that she loves, she she walks away from and nearly dies, and then finds herself in a position to be to receive it back. And that that's that's the redemption part of the story. It's not just about the love story. It is about her entire soul and the pilgrimage of her earthly life to the kingdom. It's interesting how even people who should or do see her virtue still don't totally believe her i don't know how to put it like even sinjin when the money comes when she finds out about the inheritance he he's trying to convince he's like yeah just think about it you don't really want to do like they almost kind of view her as she's too good to be true or something like that and she's even even when she wants to do the right thing people who believe in doing the right thing almost try to convince her not to do the right thing I, i just found that found that fascinating the one person who should be like you are so like who should honor the choices that she's making just based on the way he looks at the world and what he values. And yet he, because he doesn't really believe that she knows what she's doing. She does they don't, he doesn't trust her. He pushes back on her, on her choice. So even, even the good characters are, if I can use the word loosely, there's lots of people who are degrees of good in this book, but even, you know, even Sinjin is kind of resisting her her to the choices that she's making well i just found that fascinating the way that everywhere she goes there's some kind of barrier put up against her making a virtuous choice even the people who are themselves virtuous although flawed charlotte bronte never really lets her off the <laughs> never really takes her foot off of her you know it's like 
everywhere she goes. So then my, my question related to that is, is there a point at which like, is that, how much of that is thematic? How much of that is about keeping the Gothic trope going? You know, there's times when I felt like there's a couple of chapters here where it felt like I was actually reading Austin, not really reading a Gothic novel. Uh, and I was wondering if that was Bronze kind of letting us, letting things up a little bit, <laughs> letting the intensity back a little bit. Cause it does kind of feel like a novel of manners there for a few chapters when they're talking about money and what to do and her job as a teacher and all that. It kind of doesn't have the trimmings of the Gothic novel. So do you think that, um, Bronte really is letting us out, letting up there or is it, am I missing some of those, the, the tropes of the Gothic novel that are in these chapters? I mean, I know she's wandering around the rain. That's pretty Gothic, <laughs> but then after that, it kind of lets up for a while. Well, th I mean, that's why I wouldn't call this a Gothic novel. Um, I mean, it, ha it it's influenced by Gothic novels and it has elements of Gothicism is in it, but that's why it's a, well, if I dare say it, this is why it's a great novel is because it's not a gothic novel. Um, it, it's more than that. Expands upon it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I just, um, because gothic, I mean, it has, a, yeah, that's, I think that's really all I was going to say is it has elements of gothicism is in it, but it does much more than that. And it's, it's, you know, what I call, you know, small R realism. I mean, not capital R realism that comes later, but mm -hmm. it's setting the stage for, for the realism that will come later. I mean, this is the most, this is one of the most realistic novels before, you know, one of the earliest realistic novels, even as unrealistic as it is. So what do you think, Heidi? Well, yeah. Um, I think that we have a bit of a chiastic structure here. Like with you, you you talked earlier about how structurally it's appropriate for her to kind of be in uh, destitute and outcast at the beginning of this section of the novel. Uh, and in the first section of the novel, that's what happens, right? She's put in the red room. She's cast out by her aunt. She's she's defenseless um, and helpless in the face of, um, you know, natural elements and, um, and evil people, right? Or maybe not. I don't know if Brocklehurst is evil. That might be overstating it, but you, you know what I mean. And then, and then she kind of finds her way at Lowood. And she's given back this life that was lost to her um, in which she gets a chance to invest in herself and grow and become educated and, uh, and heal from this traumatic past. And that's essentially what happens here. Uh, she's cast out into, into the moors and she's wandering about. And I, you know, I have been to the moors many times. It would be a horrible place. You cannot survive out there for a long it's it's a very wild landscape and there's nothing that grows other than heather and there's no place to shelter and so that's very realistic that within three days she would be on death's mm -hmm. door and also so anyway she she ends up at these people's house they take her in and then she begins another time of of finding her way and like kind of a peaceful and quiet um, heart of her life kind of thing. And that's the same thing that happened at Lowood. And so it's kind of this, these cycles that repeat, right? And so one thing that we might be expecting to repeat, David brought up Sinjin, is 
we might be expecting Sinjin to be the new love of her life because what we do know is that she had two sisters or cousins who were very cruel to her. And then now we have some surrogate replacement sister mm-hmm. cousins, right? That become like very healing to her instead. And and then she found uh, in the first part of her life, this man that she fell in love with and she couldn't have. And now we have a good man who maybe she's going to fall in love with him and maybe he's going to become the new love of her life and leave Rochester behind. And so that kind of question marks got to be in every reader's mind as we're seeing these patterns repeat and be redeemed right. in the second half of the novel the way that they were were in the first half. And we also have, you know, a um, another, you know, a, a Blanche Ingram, in this case, Rosamond mm-hmm. Oliver, right? That's right. Um, and, you know, the names are just mm-hmm. so similar. You know, Blanche is a color, Rosamond is like rose. And um, yeah, right. so lots of lots of parallels. But and, this time she's nice to her, right? So right, it's like, right. Like, right. oh, look how healing this is. This is exactly. so sweet and lovely. And, yes. Which which also so, brings back the name of the um I I you know I'm just sort of obsessed with the with the symbol symbolism of the names but Moore House um you gave a great description of the Moors and and how they are you know they're they're just sort of stripped of most things sort of vacant but yet the, the, there's another meaning of the word Moore as well I mean this is a place where Jane finds her moorings right or at least so far and <laughs> and I mean she literally comes into her money which is nice um mm-hmm. but even just her you know she, as Heidi has described she's surrounded by people who are loving and kind and helpful and so she really has is mooring herself here you know her spiritually and otherwise and marsh end which is the other name this is to your point marsh end could be kind of this idea of finding stable footing after being lost out in the marshes and sinking and mm-hmm. um and being muddied by what's come before and so like yes all of this is is even if the reader's not consciously putting together this kind of chiastic structure even if even if you're just kind of taking it in and letting it wash over you. Um, the similarities are so striking and so intentional uh, that we do see this idea of having run away and face death. Jane is is receiving back tenfold the things that she has lost in a good and a healing and healthy way. And then you have this young man with his own sad love story who is who is good and kind and has sa- literally saved her life um, and given her back a meaning and purpose and all of these kinds of things. And so every reader has got to be wondering what's going on with this guy is there a, a future for them did you mention she even does a portrait of rosamond just like she, she did a portrait of blanche to yes. remind herself that she would never be like her and not that far off with uh with, with rosamond do we need to do a little rochester sinjin comparison <laughs> because it seems like she definitely is now goes on a the- good time for that now is a good time as any, probably. Yeah. Well, okay. just because we will learn more for next, but we can right. we we can talk Let's about do it for what we know. Yes, yes. Okay, Heidi, I'll go. go for okay. it. Okay. Yep. Um, so, gotta get our blackboard out and write them on the this, board. As we I'm can. gonna I'm gonna go. Every reader, every every one of our listeners is going to either roll their eyes or be like, "Oh, good, I do know Heidi." <laughs> I'm gonna talk about duty and desire because <laughs> we have. Rochester with his, who's an entirely desire-driven person, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Sinjin, who mm. is the first thing he says, the literal first sentence that comes out of his mouth in the book is, 
thank you, Hannah. I can't remember the exact wording, but it is something like, thank you for you doing your duty. I'm going to do mine and bring her in. Right. So from the beginning, he has brought Jane in out of a sense of duty. He's going to always do the right thing. Uh, And if I were, if I were Jane, perhaps that might feel quite comforting and soothing to me after the storm of Rochester to have this very contrasting man who just always does the right thing. He's so driven by service. He's so driven by his vocation. And in some ways there's, they are more, they're overt kind of outside actions are more, much more similar than Jane's and Rochester. You would meet them and think, oh, like this, these would, these two people would be a much better match, right? What we do know about Jane is there's hidden depths in her, but those don't always show on the surface. Um, Mm. But they are, they're profoundly different men and, you know, but they're the only men she's ever come across other than Brocklehurst and John. So yeah, that's but that's, that's true. the big thing that is the striking contrast between the desire-driven Rochester and the duty-driven Sinjin. That was the first thing that that springs to my mind. Uh, Karen, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think all of that is helpful, and we, I mean, it's clear where what we know now, and it, it's good. It is actually good to talk about this now because it will set some of the you know stage for what we what develops later. Um, I think the description of him in chapter thirty on page five eighty is really helpful um, to, to think about. So I'll just read that. This is the middle paragraph talking about him. But besides his frequent absences, there was another barrier to friendship with him. He seemed of a reserved and abstracted and even of a brooding nature, which is interesting because, you know, brooding we associate with the Byronic hero. And and so Sinjin does have his own sort of brooding, but it's a, of a very different kind uh, than Rochester's. Um, zealous in his ministerial labors, blameless in his life and habits, he yet did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content, which should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. Often of an evening when he sat at the window, his desk and papers before him, he would cease reading or writing, rest his chin on his hand and deliver himself up to I know not what course of thought, but that it was perturbed and exciting might be seen in the frequent flash and changeful dilation of his eye. Um, So I'll just stop there, I guess. Um, But it's just interesting that you know, there, there's just there are these little sort of theological gems here in the whole throughout the novel, which is why I keep calling it the most Christian novel you might read. Um, in the middle, where he says that mental serenity and inward contentment should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. So, so those who believe rightly and do rightly um, should have inner peace and contentment but Sinjin does not seem to have that. The, on 579, the, the last full paragraph, as to Mr. Sinjin, the intimacy which had arisen so naturally and rapidly between me and his sisters did not extend to him. Mm. One reason of the distance he had observed between us was that he was completely seldom or comparatively seldom at home. A large proportion of his time appeared devoted to the visiting the sick and poor among the scattered population of his parish. With Rochester, they had this intimacy that came on very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this is the opposite of that as well. Um, and and it's, it is, be, 
because he's doing his duty, as Heidi said, right? I mean, he is, right. he's doing what a, a good minister or missionary or Christian should do, visiting the, the sick and the poor and taking care of them. Yeah, even to the point that he's resisting the one who is in love with him and has the, you know, that would make a good match, certainly financially for someone in his, in his shoes. Do, um, uh, Heidi, were you going to say something? Yeah, he's also very handsome. And Rochester is not. And he he hides his feelings and doesn't give them voice. Whereas Rochester is, is, at least with Jane, just right on the surface with everything that he's thinking and feeling. But they're both like very, very intelligent and strong people. They both have very strong personalities and strong presences um, and command attention. Uh, so there's many similarities as well as differences, and they're they're very clearly contrasted from, with each other in the novel. So why doesn't Jane? So why why doesn't she respond to him the way she does to Rochester? Given what we know we'll, about her, right? We'll get I think more insight into that when we talk next week. Um, but it is clear that she she spends more time describing him and his their conversations her responses to him his physical appearance his actions she spends much more time studying and describing sinjin than she does mary and diana and so it's clear that he becomes a central focus and figure in her life and a, and um in the same a, a similar way to rochester at least in the presence and centrality of their influence upon her. She does not describe her feelings for Sinjin in the same way that she does with Rochester, but we also know from her relationship with Rochester that it took her a long time to even face her feelings for him. Do you have anything to add to that, Karen? Um, no, I, I, there is, but uh, some more of, uh, his character is revealed so brilliantly by Austin in the same, um, chapter where we've been talking Bronte. about and I, uh, by, yeah. what did I say? Did I say? Austin. Austin. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Freudian slip. Um, I'm just yes, kidding. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is, I, the, yeah, I think Bronte is, is really good where she, you know, where she kind of channels mm-hmm. Austin. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so in this edition, it is uh, 587 um, where they're having the conversation about, um, the offer to go to and be a teacher at this school, which of course she does. Uh, and so at the bottom, the middle bottom half of the page, when they're talking about this and, and he says, I read it in your eye. It is not of that description, which promotes, which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. And she says, I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious. He repeated, no, what made you think of ambition? Who is ambitious? I know I am, but how, how did you find it out? <laughs> um, I was speaking of myself. <laughs> well, if you are not ambitious, you are, he paused, what? I was going to say impassioned, but perhaps you would have misunderstood the word. And that, that's another, I mean, that's another important part of, but th- what I wanted to focus on is how just when she brings up the word ambitious about herself, it's like he has a guilty conscience you know it's like projection because he recognizes that this is his struggle and she's like well I wasn't talking about you I was talking about me and I just think that's so psychologically insightful on the part of Bronte to just reveal his character uh in that small but important way in this little just this little exchange 
I love it. I agree. It's brilliant. I thought it was telling that this happened right before they found out about their uncle's death. So there, there's this discussion of ambition and this projection and so forth. But on 589 is where the letter comes. And we then later learn that they were expecting to maybe get some inheritance that would allow them to have an easier life. And he would be able to, you know, expand on his ministry and they'd be more comfortable, all those sorts of things. And that's not going to happen. And so they're a little hurt by that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, later on, we figure out more about that story and, and things get fixed. But just as they're discussing about ambition, that's when all of his ambitions are crumbled because are shut down because he's not going to get the money. So she, she puts that there like in the perfect spot <laughs> for us to be prepared <laughs> yeah. for that to be, you know, increasingly, you know, it should, should be meaningful. So it's, there's the development, but there's also like the, the, the development of the character as well as the development of the themes and the plot. Like she, she does all this with the three little lines like that. And then just by putting them in the right place changes everything. Go ahead. Now, I want to, uh, this is actually more of a question I'm throwing out there for the for the listeners, and maybe it will come up in the Q&A, but I, I mean, I read this so, lo- we've talked about, you know, the memories of reading this the first time, and the things we don't remember, and I, I don't remember specifically, but I, I think the first time that I read this, I think there was a lot of surprise, but not disbelief in, in the way, you know, because some th- things happen fast in this, in this section of reading, where they find out that they're not getting the money, and then they find out, oh, you're our cousin, and oh, and oh, we get the, <laughs> they're getting the money. And I guess I'm curious for anyone who's reading it for the first time, or maybe, you know, one of you or both of you remember if this seemed believable or if, and if it was, or if it was surprising, I re, I kind of just remember being surprised like, Oh, I never saw that coming. But now, you know, when you reread it, you kind of think, Oh, well, of course you, you see the signs. So I'm just curious about these plot elements and if people think that they were surprising, believable or predictable, I don't know, any, anybody have responses to that? I mean, the, the connection, their connection as cousins, I mean, you, you studied this novel more than I have, Karen, I almost called you Jane. That's funny. Um, It's a compliment. Um, You studied this novel more than I have a Karen, um, because I do know your name, but I, this is to me, I think this is the most criticized aspect of the novel and from what I've encountered is this coincidence that they are cousins and uh, they're actually family. Surprise, you don't get just get a surrogate family. You get a real family, even better. <laughs> so and you get to take care of them. Right. Um, and I think that it it is a little bit of cheating, but but it is the novelist's prerogative to cheat in a story in order to tell the best story. This, it is not capital R realism to your point. Uh, and it does make it more redemptive for her to find her long lost family. And it also makes it more um, just on a, I can see why on a practical level, she would want to make them family because if they were strangers, just surrogate family, then it really wouldn't work for Jane to give them money. That would be wrong for them to take it. Um, and, well, and Jane has to be the one who reconciles this family. And she wants so much, right? Like she even says that, like, I like, give me the gift of being able to help. Yeah. And the fact that their family um makes that not just a kindness, but in a sense, part of her duty. 
um, she is making it right and equalizing. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely will say, yeah, I mean, I get it feels like cheating and it probably is a little bit, but this is a novel that mm -hmm. novels have magic in them. Novels have long lost families reunite novels. <laughs> are not just about describing the way life is, but it's an invitation to look at the way life could be and a reflection of a deeper and truer kind of reality. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really well put. I, I totally agree with you. And I will say in, in Bronte's defense, uh, you know, I mean, again, just, we've talked about this in several of the episodes, just um, avoiding presentism and judging by our standards. I mean, this was a much smaller world. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And, and so, and people didn't travel that far. And I mean, even, even today where I live, you know, I mean, like there are, there are like three family names that half of the people in the county have one of those family names. And it's like, there are, they're all, gotcha, you ask, are, you, are you related to the, so, yeah. and so? Oh, well, I'm sure we're related somehow. Um, yeah. And so, so even in this world, it's not as unrealistic uh, as it would be in our world. So, so kind of putting those two things together, I think can help us have the best judgment of, of this plot device. It's not like they uh, went from London to Paris to yeah. like San Francisco to yeah. Tokyo. <laughs> and I mean, even the royal family today pretty much marries cousins, right? Or I mean, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, the world was pretty small then; they didn't travel very far. But then, then, I, then the only counter to that would be, well, they did send out a big search party for her and didn't find her. So. <laughs> Um, I guess you could say yeah, that's, that's the counter that's to that, that's but true. I think right, you know, right. That's kind um, of picking nits. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, th I think the more important point is the the kind of thing that Heidi was saying is the sort of the spiritual, emotional truth. Like she found her 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 because these were strangers. These were the people who took her in. Right, a lot. She encountered a lot of other people who you know, the best they could do is feed her pig slop. Um, th this is, these are the people who took her in. So the fact that they turn out to be her family is a kind of transcendent truth because these are the kind of people who would be Jane's people, the kind of people who would take a stranger in and, and treat her like family. And that's the more important truth. Mm. So as we get into the rest of this book, you know, you we're going to talk more about Sinjin and his characters. I feel like, you know, I don't know how to put it. He's going to get more complex, the relationship and, you know, the whole scenario, his role maybe in the story is what I should say is going to get more complex. What in this section, these chapters stands out as preparation for the final, the final climax, the final, you know, chapters that we're going to read that are going to take us to the end of her story and, you know, take us through a, uh, a fair bit more drama <laughs> because um, in some ways the drama kind of plateaus for a little bit and it does feel like a respite it's mm -hmm. certainly in her life but for us as readers as we because we know we're going to get in the last 75 pages we're going to get some more drama so how do you see Bronte preparing us to receive those those plas uh, events actually that question that you just asked is helping me to understand something I've never been able to understand about this novel. So thank you, David. Um, because, You're welcome. <laughs> because um, 
I have never, I've never known if it's because this part of the novel is not written that well, or I'm not a good enough reader, but I've never been able to understand why Jane was not happier and more content or, and even more excited about the school, the job teaching in the school. I've never been able to understand why she, this wasn't like a, a perfect fit for her uh, and why she just really wasn't that content and I think that the question you just asked is like if she had been as content and happy like I mean this seemed like this is what the, the her job of a lifetime she's been a school teacher before this is in a nice village she has some family and friends here uh, and she's her the own students probably remind student. her of herself yeah yes and, and so I've never been able to understand why isn't she just happy here this is like this is the best gig she's had um but i think it's because because she needs this discontentment that she has is important for how things go later (laughs) (laughs) she has to be discontent yeah go ahead heidi yeah i think that's i think that's good i've never thought about that karen but that totally makes so much sense uh i think also we see uh the beginning of restoration Right, which is a foreshadowing of further restoration. I think we see um, a a progression in her in her character, like the mastery yeah. over herself in this section, and a greater and deeper trust in herself and in the world, which is really important to the huge turning point in her life that is coming. And then. I also think that her growing at this so far in this section, her growing dependence uh, on Sinjin is a, it's something we have to pay attention to. Hmm. While you were talking, I was thinking about how, how for so much of the book, Jane has either been desperate to be welcomed or she has been actively rejecting people whose situations that are not great typically from people who are either cruel or making bad choices on her behalf (laughs) without telling her and storing wives in castles without telling, you know, things like that. Um, (laughs) Storage rooms full of wives that are unknown. Um, And here during this section, her agency so far has been about, you know, her agency is expanded in this section. She's able to now make decisions that are going to impact someone else's future. She gets to be hospitable. She gets to welcome people and she gets to become a mentor in a very real way. Aside from, I mean, she was a little bit for, you know, Rochester's ward, but, um, but it's not the same because he's got so much control over the situation. And so during this section, her agency is expanding so much. And as that happens, increasingly her, 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 her virtues and her, her goodness are being put to the test, you know, to the point where she, well, let me put it this way. I think it's and I think it's proof of what Bronte is trying to do with Jane that when she well when she gladly says no, we're splitting this money four ways. There's I'm not accepting any other solution. We're not surprised. She's been preparing us. She her virtues have been put to the test so many times that when that happens, when she finally has true agency, true resources, a, ability to live her life exactly how she wants to, her first decision is to to be selfless, um, to give up some of that. And that's on the one hand, it's on the one hand, a great bit of 
character development because it, it seems completely right. On the other hand, the, there's a bit of it's a bit of a triumph for Jane because we've been told that she is a certain way, and when she has the chance to act in a in a selfish way that no one would blame her for, I'll use the word selfish loosely. She acts that in a way that has been in keeping with the girl that she the woman that she's been becoming for the whole book. So going back to what we talked about it as a buildings Roman in the first episode, this is like one of those moments where she is proving that she is, I don't know how else to put it, but like grown up, you know, she's there. Um, and, and the rest of the book is going to be impacted by the fact that she is now, again, this is going to sound like a little bit, you know, um, she's good. She's like, a, she's a, this a full grown virtuous woman here who's making decisions for herself and others that are, that are, um, right and virtuous decisions and the whole book kind of flows from that i think the rest of the way now i haven't read it that as closely as i'm going to read it this time in a long time so that that's just my theory based on what i remember <laughs> to be fair uh, but but i really do believe that this is a triumphant moment for what charlotte bronte has been preparing preparing jane to be like right I love what you're saying because I think it is a mistake to read this novel as Jane gets a man. Which one is it? Uh, It is a novel about the development of the self. And it is a good and virtuous thing for the self to love another self. That's good. It isn't just, you know, oh, great. She gets married off at the end and that undercuts the entire feminist message of this early feminist novel. That's, that's, that's a mistake. Um, it's a mistake to see it as just a love story. And it's a mistake to see it as a failure of the development of the feminine self because the feminine self ends up loving somebody and being loved in return. That, that's a good thing in part of part of human life. Um, and so I think once you get to this part of the novel, it's easy, I think, for readers to just want to know who she ends up with, right? And I I think that is a mistake because exactly to your point, David, so the novel is tracing how Jane fully embodies the image of God in her. And it's a journey of the soul for her in which she makes mistakes and makes glorious triumphs in which she suffers and finds glory and joy and all of these things that are just part of, although probably none of us have ever been in love with somebody who had a wife locked in a closet somewhere or an attic. Um, still it is, uh, still, this is an every man story. The, the idea of, of learning how to love and what love costs and what it means to live in the world and yet be, you know, called out of the world at the same time and to live as a Christian in a harsh world is our journey. And that is Jane's journey. That's way more than just about the guy she ends up with and everything to do about the kind of person who makes choices in the novel. And that's what we're seeing in this section. So we're going to do to the end of the book, which is, I guess, 34 through 34, right? Yeah. 34 through 38 that it ends. That ends the book chapter 38. Yeah, I think so. 30. There yep. is a question that you had in your um Yeah, yeah in, your, in your reflection questions, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking for the question and trying to think at the same time, which is just a terrible it's idea. It's really for hard me. reading and thinking. That's just too many I know. things. <laughs> <laughs> you got to read then think and then talk. And then like talk. doing it all at one time. <laughs> like, yeah. Imagine trying to eat while you're doing that. <laughs> okay, so you had this we were talking about Sinjin. And we, you actually do ask a question about 
how does Sinjin contrast with Mr. Rochester? For that, though, you ask a question about Sinjin's Christianity contrasted with Helen Burns. And I, before we go, I wanted to bring this up because we talked about how much we love her as a character. And your question is a two-part question. It's question number 10. And this is the reflection questions for volume three, not the part that's for the... I think there's some additional ones for the whole book, right? So you say, how does right. Sinjin's devout Christianity contrast with that of Helen Burns? How might gender and social factors play into their differences? Before we go, I wanted to make sure to, to address this because I, want, I didn't know if we would get to later. Helen's a great character. Do you think, do you want to answer, is that a question we can talk about now or do we have to wait until we've read more about Sinjin? You asked it in this section. So I feel like maybe you probably are, are good with me asking the, the question now. <laughs> Well, I asked it like this section is includes uh, all of the right, right. But but I I think we I think we can begin to answer it now, even though not completely. So what I would say, even based on what we just talked about, we we would say we know that Sinjin mm-hmm. is is dutiful, right? For him, his Christianity is fulfilling his duty, um, and for Helen, I mean, Helen suffered. Helen was in this terrible school, and she got sick and, and died. And so her stoicism was a way of bearing her suffering. Um, Sinjin isn't really, you know, I mean, he, he, he thinks he's suffering a bit because he's not getting, you know, he's not, uh, getting the money that he wants initially, but he's, they're, they're not destitute. I mean, they're in a good situation and he's got a pretty, um, lovely lady that he could marry. And so his, his worst case is not that, that bad. Right, right. And so he's just sort of fulfilling. I think I say later, and this isn't giving a spoiler, but um, I mean, Sinjin, I don't, I think this word is used, but he is clearly a Calvinist Christian. And that's not to say, you know, I'm not picking on the Calvinist (laughs) now, but I mean, in in Bronte's, or maybe I am, no, In in Bronte's time, I mean, these factions and sects of Christianity were, you know, they were controversial just like they are now. And there were, there were, you know, criticisms of the evangelicals and criticisms. Right, right, exactly. So, so, so this was, um, so Sinjin is a Calvinist Christian and, and in the best and worst ways. And I guess that's all I will say for now about that. Well, and we also know that the, I think the main difference that we can tell so far between Helen Burns and Sinjin is there is Sinjin lacks inner peace and that you pointed mm-hmm. that out that, and that's, that was one of the things that, so that is the thing that so drew Jane to Helen was that she was able to bear with fortitude uh, and with serenity that slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to quote another great writer, right? <laughs> um, she was suffering and under attack and, and sick and, and yet she was at peace and so we see a different brand, as you're pointing out, of stoicism, right? A brand of religious stoicism, at least in belief, that at least that's what that's what Sinjin is striving for, right? But he is such an internally tormented person. And we see this in this in this section that we read. And and he's hard on himself and others. And that is not like Helen at all. It's interesting that. Rochester also has this inner turmoil, but it's so different because mm-hmm. you mentioned that yes. Sinjin is hard on himself, but I don't know that I would describe, use that as how I would describe Rochester. Um, I mean, I think he probably is hard on himself, but he's also um, views him, seems to view himself as a, um, 
I was going to say a martyr, but that would be the wrong term. But like, uh, he's the one who's bearing the slings and arrows and he right. sees himself as being, as having suffered this great deal. And he thinks that's where this mm-hmm. inner turmoil is coming from. And, you know, he can't control himself and all that, all that sort of thing. Um, so they're just, they both, they both have this deep inner turmoil that she seems to recognize. And she has a lot more respect for the inner turmoil that is in Sinjin, I think. And yet she falls in love with Rochester so quickly. Um, I find that, if nothing else, I just find that fascinating. Go mm-hmm. ahead, Karen. It is fascinating. I mean, yeah, and I mean, that's a good point of contrast that we can already see. I mean, she says that she doesn't have that much interaction with him for various reasons, but Rochester went, I mean, he Rochester was away a lot, but when he was there, his attention was completely on her and they would have these intellectual conversations. Um, and uh, with Sinjin, you know, it's the, his, his mind mm. is somewhere else and his heart. Yeah, true. That makes, that's, that makes a bit of a difference. <clears throat> well, let's talk next week then. So, or, or anything else you want to touch on that we didn't get to so far? Well, I, you know, so you usually yeah. ask us about what to look for. And since we are talking about Sinjin right now, then I just want to say, you know, really pay attention to, um, to how the novel ends because like the, I mean, the very, the, like the last paragraph or two uh, when you get to it, because, because that, you have to pay attention that that could possibly change the way you interpret mm. the whole novel um, is how it ends literally not, not the final event, yeah, the final words, the final, final words. words. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. There's some stuff that I feel like we kind of have been dancing around for a long time that once we get to the end and then we do the Q and a episode, we'll be able to just, you know, unleash the dogs. Um, but Heidi, what about you? What do you want to, what do you, would you say we should look for or anything that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on that we feel like we can talk about before we get to the unleash the dog stage of our conversation? Right. No, I think that my final words are a, a shorter repetition of what I said earlier, which is don't look for the resolution of the love story that's coming. Look for the development of Jane in her selfhood. Look for Look for the capital S self and then ask yourself the question, is this, you know, is this the, is this the full redemption is, should it have gone a different way? Like, you know, these, these are the kinds of questions that I think become really important um, as we get to the end and unleash the dogs, because it is a, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what our, our, our listeners who are new to the story are expecting, it, there's a lot of controversy about the end of this novel, a lot, a lot. So, um, you know, we will talk about that next week, but look at it through the lens of Jane's development of self, her pilgrimage to becoming the true Imago Day, and look and, and interpret the end of this novel based on that, not just what you wanted to happen and who you wanted her to end up with. I think it'll take you deeper into the heart of the novel to look at it through that lens. Karen, anything else you want to add? Yep, that's that's a good okay. final word. All right. Well, then we will do go to the end of the book. Then the next week we'll do the Q and A. So you know, you get your questions ready. We'll have the the um, thread on the Facebook page, and then of course you can also email questions to us. Uh, best place is probably David at goldberrybooks dot com if you want to you know send in questions for me to keep handy for that episode. Um, then after that we're going to dive into uh, Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. Tim will be back for that. Uh, continue to keep uh, him and his family in your prayers as well, if you would. Um, but we will dive into 
most likely, I think we're going to do that. That book's divided into four parts. So we'll probably do an episode on each of those parts and then the Q&A. So five total episodes on all the pretty horses. So uh, get ready for part one. It is the Part one will be the longest section that we read. So if you need to get started on that, you know, just want to get that out there a few weeks early for you. All right. I think that's about everything. Um, so for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.